The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, abort your transaction and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 68 with guests Benjamin Mitchell and John Bristow, recorded live Thursday, June 17th. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VB.NET and ASP.NET classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActorReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Dundas Chart. Advanced technology, advanced results. Online at www.dundaschart.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who really knows his woofer from his tweeter, Carl Franklin. Rough. Hey, man. <laughs> and won't you please welcome my co-host, my partner in crime from Portland, Oregon tonight, sounding like he's just in the other room, Mr. Badass himself, Rory Blythe. What's up, man? What's up? What's happening? Star well, of stage, you know, screen, and tech ed movies. Yeah, not a lot going on. Hanging out, just sort of enjoying the rather pleasant weather in Portland. It's been absolutely beautiful cool. the past few days. Which translates into like 95 degrees inside of my apartment and 110% humidity. I'm sort of taking a shower yeah, all the time. We're sort of in the same boat here. It's a bit yeah, humid. So. You know, it's humid when you sun. put on your air conditioner in your car and like mist comes out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. How's yeah, the dog? So, the dog is fabulous. The only bad thing I have figured out about having a dog is that the treats that we give him, the the little treats that we give him for uh, for going to the bathroom outside and for sitting down and not chewing on the furniture, they smell really good. And they smell better than the food we get to have eat. You t- have you tasted and, them? You no, know, I haven't. But when I was a kid, see, yeah. this is a problem. This has been a problem my whole life. When I was a kid, we had cats. And I used to love the smell of dry cat food. And I used to actually stick my head in the bag of Meow Mix and just <sighs> inhale. And I used just to love, love the smell it. I mean, of boiling cats. Those were... Those smelled really, That's really good. Disgusting. Yeah. Thank you. No, but Meow Mix actually smells really good. Although it doesn't, it doesn't taste as good as it smells. That's the problem with Meow Mix. But I'm kind of back in that state now where I'm kind of getting the dog treats out. I'm like, should I give that to the dog or should I eat the dog treats? Um, ah. And. That's that's sort of problematic. And tonight I gave him what looks like a stretched and dried piece of pig intestine that's been cured <laughs> and salted 
for him to chew on. And, you know, at first it was kind of gross, but he chewed on it for about 10 minutes. And I started thinking, you know, that, that actually looks pretty good. Uh, so so what did you have so for he's dinner got, tonight, he's got Roy? That. What did I have for dinner? I, I haven't had dinner yet. I went out to lunch with, with Chris Sells. So all this food is making you hungry? All this talk about dog food and cat food? It's not actually no, making no? me hungry. Okay, it's I'm a chew checking. toy, really. I mean, it's, okay. you're supposed to suck on that piece of intestine. You don't actually swallow. Well, I don't know. You said that looked good and Meow Mix smelled good and, you know. It does. It doesn't taste good, though. Okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, so um, that's been my life for the week. Hanging out with the dog. What's up with you? Well, this uh, week I've been sort of relaxing and writing some code and, and taking care of things. I, um, I've been working on this program to do some real-time audio uh, encoding. Jeff and I sort of lit a spark under each other when we were talking, uh, when we were editing the show over the weekend, we were thinking about how this could be done. So I've been doing that, had my head in the code, and also um, going to Montreal this weekend for DevTeach. I'm actually driving cool. up there tomorrow, and that should be fun. It's about a six and a half, maybe seven hour drive, and it uh, should be a lot of fun. I can't wait for that. Other than that, you know, just sitting around trying to uh, stay cool and enjoy the weather. I've been hanging out a lot cool. with my kids. Yep. Well, oh, boy. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain dynamic that you lose when you're not in the studio, you know? It's like uh, can't see each other. I can't see you making faces, you know, when the guest is trying to say something that sounds important. Yep. Yeah, that's why we need to get some video chat hookup going yeah, on we'll or something. Yeah, we'll do that. And speaking of the that, studio, yeah, your out. friend and mine, Joe Grenier, is in the studio tonight. Hey, Joe. Which is cool. Hey, Rory. He did bring some beer. I'm having a Sea Dog India Pale Ale right now. Cool. And you're drinking well, something else. Well, that would be a little a difficult there, Joe. Yeah, he's got a harpoon. So, so good, good, well, good. I've got, a, I've got a glass of water, and I've got 20 milligrams of cardine that I'm going to have to take at about 8 o'clock, so... Actually, if you take that cardine right with some alcohol, some hard alcohol, that will increase the effectiveness of it. And that's a joke. So that's actually true. <laughs> that, is, that is entirely... It'll also probably melt my liver, so I'm going <laughs> to avoid that for the time being. Um, right. But if I feel like having that sort of experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's actually been kind of tough because I, move, I moved to a lower dose of the cardine, but the old stuff was time release, and this, yeah. it all hits you at once. And it really lays me out. My blood pressure drops to like one, you know. Now and, I've uh, been waiting. I've been waiting to lay this on you. Some information from my family life um, until we got on the show because I wanted to hear your reaction. But uh, okay. you know, my littlest daughter Clara, she's two. Yeah, got Lyme disease. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, she's okay. She's taking antibiotics and she's going through the regular treatment. Whoa. But but wow. uh, she contracted it. Yep, and we didn't even see a uh, tick bite. She just had a fever. So how did you find out? Well, she had a uh -huh. fever, and then we um, we took some. What did we do? We the fever wasn't going away, so we figured it wasn't a virus. So we had a, some blood drawn. And here's the interesting thing about Lyme disease, ladies and gentlemen, is that normal Lyme disease is caused by a bacteria, but it's not caused by the bacteria, you know, going and attacking your system like normal bacteria does, which which causes your white blood cell count to increase. Your white blood cell count actually does not increase when you have this bacteria. It's a byproduct of the bacteria that's a toxin that causes the problem. So when you take antibiotics, you get rid of the bacteria, and then slowly the toxin leaves your body. But it's not the bacteria in and of itself that, you know, you're, in other words, the white blood count came back in the blood, blood work, to be normal. 
And that was mm-hmm. a clue to them. It's really cool. And, you, you know, my wife Gretchen is a nurse, and she's thinking of going into infectious disease as a specialty. Mm-hmm. And it's these little yeah. kind of puzzles that are – it's actually a very cool, very cool field to get into. Wow, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I want to tell you because we were all like, oh, oh. you're not going to get Lyme disease. Don't worry about it. You know? Yeah. Wow, man. Well, I hope she, you know, I hope she's all right. And I hope yeah, everything she's goes fine. Well. She's totally fine. Is she taking doxycycline? She is taking amoxicillin. For okay. kids under eight, they usually prescribe amoxicillin for 21 days. Yeah. Well, cool. and, well uh, I hope that works out. Yeah. And we think we caught it in time. The thing with Lyme disease is it's very easy to catch in time, but if you don't catch in time, mm-hmm. it can completely screw you up. I mean, yeah. I know a woman who has a paralyzed eye because she didn't treat it in time. Right. And uh, yeah. other people, you know, it attacks your joints, so they have trouble walking. It's like an arthritis arthritis effect, yep. whatever. Yep. Well, anyway. It's a messed up thing. It is. Move on to something a little happier. Yeah, you know? yeah. But she's, I mean, she's uh, totally fine, and don't worry about it. Good, good. Yeah, so we got some mail, Rory. We actually right. uh, had a, a sort of a dearth of mail here for the last few weeks, and it's good to get some feedback, and, and I'd encourage people out there listening. Oh, and speaking of feedback, you know, I wrote a chat program. I just started talking about it last week uh, that I'm writing this chat program, um, but we're actually using it live in the show, and we'll, we're, you know, we're just testing it out tonight. So <clears throat> It's working really well, though. Yeah, it's working well. It's working a lot better than, a the, than the Yahoo thing. It's nice, and it's lightweight. Yeah, it's, it's very light. Well, so. All right, so uh, so so here's the here's the mail we got. Uh, this one is a uh, from Jeffrey Goldberg, who sent us a very amusing letter. Uh, he's an attorney on Wall Street in New York, and he sent us a great letter a couple of weeks ago, and we sent him some useless crap, and he sent this back. Carl, just wanted to thank you for the article of quote-unquote useless crap you sent me, the .NET Rocks mug. In particular, I know you'll appreciate this, but it's not useless at all. In fact, it's perfect for drinking the Macallan 30-year-old I recently received as a gift. He has good taste. Although I must admit I don't normally drink my scotch from a coffee mug, I had to debunk the useless qualifier wrongfully assigned to your perfectly useful crap. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Although, also, although still crap, the mug is not only useful, but it is aesthetically... (laughs) But it is aesthetically enhanced with both yours and Rory's mugshot on the front. <laughs> aesthetically enhanced. Yeah. That is some careful language. Well, he's a lawyer, you know. I must yeah. say that it's an interesting concept, mugs with mugshots. Maybe you can have Bob Russellman back on the show to discuss that for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just listened to your latest show with Rocky Latka and was happy that you had him as a guest. I read his book a couple months ago and was extremely impressed with his ability to explain its subject matter. I still want you guys to check out Declare It. That's D-E-K-L-A-R-I-T. Uh, have you heard heard of that, Joe, or anybody? No. Roy? I've heard, heard of it. I haven't used it. Yeah, same here. Because it's frustrating to hear you discuss the problems with data sets, specifically regarding their current inability to encapsulate business logic, because that's exactly what Declare It does. In fact, I was I was all set to use Rocky's CSLA until I stumbled upon this product. Although not as powerful as Rocky's CSLA framework, it's perfect for my project and addresses many of the concerns that CSLA also addresses. So if you're looking for a rad tool that does it all, check out Declare. Oh, and have Andres, 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 I don't know how to say that, Andre Aguiar on the show. He deserves to be recognized for this product. Well, I think he's got the recognition, so there you go. You got in a plug. 
Anyway, thanks for the mug. You guys are great. P.S. This is not a feeble attempt to gather yet another piece of useful crap. Just wanted to convey <laughs> my thanks for the mug and renew my earlier suggestions. So there you go. Cool. Yeah, this guy's great. I wish he wrote into every show because he's entertaining to listen to. Uh, second one comes from uh, Michael. Michael G. Can't read your last name. Sorry, Michael. Carl and Rory. The, and this is a reference to the, um, the Google thing. The Yoda library card Google reference. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, he says that is a line from the movie Seven, nineteen ninety five, spoken oh. by Brad Pitt to Morgan Freeman, commenting about the serial killer they are investigating, Kevin Spacey. One of the cable channels played the movie all weekend here in Connecticut. Its uh, movie website is www.newline.com slash site slash seven. Thanks. Th- thanks for clearing that up, Mike. And for sucking to... the mystery right out of exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. right, though. Sometimes I, I wonder where these things come from, so that's cool. Yeah. It's good to explain your references. I missed it, you know. This one is from Aaron Junod, and uh, he says, Carl and Rory, I've been listening to the show for a long time, and I've heard them all. I even liked the one where Mark and Carl went to the pub, although a bit on the strange side. Yes, yes, it was. In fact, <laughs> this may be the only place I get my news, so you guys might want to start covering current events for us. What, hap- what happened this week anyway, Joe? Uh, Let's do a little current events segment. What happened in the news this week? Well, uh, I've been writing a lot of code, so I'm really not sure. <laughs> I don't know either. I've been doing the same. Okay, enough of that segment. Let's move on. Yeah, something about some de- some commission on the 9-11 thing, and there's no link. There's now there's no link with uh, weapons of mass destruction or Iraq and Al-Qaeda or something. I taught, I taught my puppy how to go to the bathroom outside. A president did die, and a puppy went to the bathroom outside. Moving right along. I am writing this since you guys have not given out any useless crap in a long time, and, well, I can always use useless crap for something. Okay, you know, I think we are going to take uh, Jeffrey's uh, uh, comment to heart and call it, start calling it useful crap. What do you think? So I'll just do a mental search useful and replace crap. on the word useless here. So I can always use useful crap for something. So how about it? Give me some useful crap. Now on to the point of the email. Having just, well, first of all, you got it, Aaron. You got it. Now on to the point of the email. Having just listened to the TDD show, uh, that's the John Alexander Test Driven Development, I wanted to share a few thoughts. We employ unit testing here at work and have had success with it thus far. I think one of the major factors in our success is also the automated build process using continuous integration, and Joe is raising his hands in victory. You've, you've used this? I'm attempting to implement it right now, and, and I think it is a fantastic thing. All right, so let me explain what he says it. We use cruisecontrol.net, CCNet for CI. Its job is to monitor VSS and build when something changes. This means that any developer on the team can check in code and within minutes get an email with the FX cop and end unit results of the entire application and address any issues immediately. This allows us to address issues that have been introduced extremely quickly and also gives us a means of reporting on the status of the app as a whole at any given time, thus adding a lot of value to our builds and unit tests. And uh, FX Cop is something I don't think we've mentioned on the show before. Maybe we, it's come up in passing, but it's, a, it's buried on Microsoft's uh, Got.net site. But what it is is it's a, a framework cop. It tells you how much your application is conforming to the standards, the Microsoft.net standards, and uh, it's a good thing. Did you, you look like you wanted to say something about that. No, I was just saying that we, we've had a little bit of trouble integrating uh, cruisecontrol.net with Visual Source Safe because the way our Visual Source Safe is set up, 
Oh. Needless to say, everybody's waiting for a Visual Studio team system so they won't have, won't have these problems. Rory, have you used FXCOP? I have used FXCOP, actually, and I love FXCOP. Cool. Um, I haven't... I, I don't take everything that it says you know, to heart. I don't, I don't take advantage of everything that it reports yeah. on, but yeah. because I'm not really like building frameworks or anything like that, usually when I'm doing development, but for a lot of what I do, it's, it's been pretty helpful. So cool. And I'm a real standards bastard. I want things yeah. to be done a certain way. And FX cop just happens to like things done the same way. So I love cool. it. Uh, he says, the other thing I would like to comment on is pair programming. Although we do not do pair programming all the time. We do use it for instances where it makes sense for us. For the majority of the applications, coders work on their respective parts of the system based on the design set forth beforehand. Uh, we handle lower-level components slightly different, though. As a team, we'll discuss how it should work from a high level, but when it comes time for implementation, there will be two coders on it. This allows us to play off each other quite a bit and really drives a much better design. I think it's helped greatly with some of the more complex things that have needed to be done and actually really enjoy doing it as a pair. Of course, if all my code had to be done in pair in a pair situation, I'd probably feel very different about it. <laughs> and he also wants to take this chance to thank you guys for the show. The new format is great, and mon- the Monday commute is by far the best of the week. Keep them coming. Aaron Junod from .NET Thinking. That's blog.iceglue.com. Aaron, thanks for writing us. Cool. Cool. Now, um, Rory, just as we got the uh, the page up that describes what the Google Weirdos is, you're throwing a monkey wrench in the, <laughs> in the process here, and you're going to stray yeah. a little bit from the format. Just so for kicks, I was thinking. I was thinking. I was thinking this week we could do a little, a little bit of in the news, a little bit of tech stuff. Just what's kind of going on, and and uh, you know, we haven't done this, we haven't rehearsed this, we haven't even talked about what it's going to be. Basically, I just went around to some sites and found some interesting tidbits, and I thought we could. I'd, I'd read them off. Maybe we could talk about them a little okay. bit, and then move along. Cool. cool. So the first thing that I found here that I wanted to talk about is a Jolon software piece that is getting a lot of attention right now. Okay. All over the place. It's it's his article. It's called How Microsoft Lost the API War. Okay. If you just go to jolonsoftware.com slash articles slash API war HTML, you'll find it. And he's essentially talking about how it might be a big mistake to uh, go from Win32 to WinFX about how Microsoft loses a lot of backwards compatibility um, in doing mm-hmm. that and probably estranges some developers and customers. And talks about the lengths to which Microsoft has gone in the past to accommodate right. uh, developers when it's making changes. There, one great example that it gives is how they actually modified part of Windows so that SimCity would run properly. It was a DOS app, and it, and it, oh, was, man. it was trying to reuse memory that... Uh, it had freed, and I guess that was okay in DOS because you're not dealing with a it's you're not dealing with a, a multitasking environment, right? So you don't really have to worry about anybody coming along and snatching your memory. But True. in Windows, you did, and and this was a problem. So they actually modified part of Windows to recognize when SimCity was running, so that SimCity could do its bad deed and get away with it. Uh, like a lot of Joel and Software articles, it's not really something that I agree with wholeheartedly, but also like a lot of and software articles, it definitely gets you thinking. Right. And and it's really it's really a great article. I mean, I happen to love the idea of WinFX. I love the idea of just dot netting everything. And and I love what I've seen in Longhorn so far. But obviously there's some people out there who might not be so excited. So yeah. it's it's a good view. So I'm sort that's of reserving judgment. I'm sort of reserving judgment until I see a little bit more. Yeah. 
yeah. probably wise. Yeah. Then the next one, um, there was a, an interview with Steve Ballmer at ActiveWin.com. Okay. And the URL for this interview is www.activewin.com slash interviews slash Microsoft slash 36, that's numeral three, numeral six, dot shtml. Hmm. And what I like about this article is Microsoft has been pretty quiet about outsourcing, or actually offshoring, I should say. And they they talked to him about this. They got one question in there, and I actually really liked his response, so, so I wanted to read it on sure. the air. Sure. ActiveWin says, how do, you feel about the outs- how do you feel the outsourcing of technology jobs to countries such as India or China has affected Microsoft? And Steve Ballmer says, as a global company, our future... Actually, should I do it in the Steve Ballmer voice? No, yeah, I shouldn't sure, do that, no, should I? <laughs> okay. <laughs> As a global company, right, our future growth and success requires <laughs> no, 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 that no, no, we. No, 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 What are you nuts? <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Nobody heard that. Erase your memories. Okay. So, as a global company, as a global company, our future growth and success requires that we constantly look at ways to improve our ability to serve customers worldwide. This involves growing our presence in key regions and tapping into the growing technical talent pool outside the U.S. India is emerging as a world-class IT leader, and as, and as China's economy grows, addressing the needs of its broadening customer base is not only important, but a great opportunity. The majority of our core development work will remain in Redmond, but by developing local programs, expertise, and presence around Microsoft technology, our customers can benefit from the technical expertise and skill found in those regions, and from the innovations and value that will come from these emerging markets tomorrow. And so can Microsoft benefit from that? Well, what I like about that is that he's essentially saying, look, we're keeping Microsoft in Redmond, but right. we have to expand. We have to go worldwide. We have to move some of our work abroad, and that's just sure. part of being a global company. And I thought it was a very sober answer, so I love that one. Um, that's good. The, the next one is Mono 1 Beta 3 was released this week, which is kind of exciting. And I got I got pretty excited just because... Um, it looks like the Cocoa Sharp bindings are coming along, and that's those are uh, bindings for the Cocoa framework, which is what you code against when you're coding on OS X. So now you can do, you're beginning to be able to do .NET work on OS X that runs against Cocoa. So you can begin to write GUI apps for OS X using .NET, which is fantastic. Huh, that's cool. I've been waiting for this for a long time. So that's good news. Then I've got two more things. Okay. There's a really fun poster that just came out from O'Reilly. It's it's the history of programming languages. And oh, yes. that's available at w- yeah, www.oreilly.com slash news slash graphics slash prog underscore lang underscore poster dot PDF. That's P-R-O-G underscore lang underscore poster dot PDF. And it's fabulous. It's way too large to view in one monitor. I mean, you'd have to go get some really fancy printer to get this sucker out the way you want it. In the very it, first language, around. Fortran. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. That's what I mean, it they've says. got everything on here. Yeah. You you can look at uh, you can you can see like wh- how Java progressed. You can see how ActionScript progressed. You can see that um, the PHP developers like to release a new version of PHP every 19 minutes. You can see <laughs> Perl and VBNet. You can see C Sharp. It's really very cool. That's some geeky yep. stuff that some I think sweet. people really enjoy. Now, lastly, this is one that I thought might start a little conversation. Um, this is on Slashdot, and the title is Munich votes for Linux migration plan. Okay. Essentially, well, I knew, I knew um, Germany had uh, sort of sworn off Windows before, and they were all open source, weren't they? The state, um, I don't know. The state software that happened like last it, year, didn't it? Yeah, that's kind of what they're doing here, and it's it, it's okay. kind of it raises a lot of a lot of issues because the German news site reports blah 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 that the city council of Munich um, has voted for the detailed concept of the Linux Linux from Munich project, 
with, with votes from all parties except the CSU, the 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 Christlich Social Union. It's a little hard for me to okay. say because of the German word. But the point is, with this decision, the 13,000 desktops and servers of the city administration will be migrated to Linux. Now, the money that they're going to save in licensing fees... They're going to more than lose, I have little doubt, in trying Seriously. to move 13,000 desktops to a different yeah. operating system. It's one but of these you situations know what's cool? where it seems. We're going we're huh. to watch that unfold and keep tabs on it. And maybe that we is can, a good point. Maybe we can uh, keep up with the news and on the show and see how it goes. That, yeah. that is actually a really good idea. That's a good, that's a good idea. I would love to see what this winds up costing in the end. Yep. I mean, if they had started with Linux, it would have been one thing. But trying to move 13,000 desktops is just asking for trouble yep. and and for rather large bills. And they're going to have to pay some consultants somewhere to do this work. And it's She's not trying to project, move 13,000 so. desktops from one version of Windows to another is bad enough. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Now we're going to just totally change the operating system. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the news for the week. Try to tell 13,000 people where the where the you know, the start button is or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah, there's a few changes, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> That's right. The they secretary can just write their own start that. button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, write yeah. their own start button. Well, yeah, sorry we don't have it. any music for this, but you know, I think it's a good bit. What do you think? Good bit? Yeah, Out there in uh in uh in live listener land, you think that's a good bit? Yeah, we're getting some positive comments, so that's good. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think it's time to announce the guest, don't you think? And before we do that, Rory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't have any crap to give away today. Let me let me look in the box and see what we have here. Hang on. A second. <laughs> All right, actually, we we do have some stuff to give away today. We have some just a a sort of a oh a bunch of different this and that swag. We've got, and we'll give the whole package away to one lucky listener. We've got a VisualStudio.net camera slash lunchbox bag. We've got an Xbox game. Uh, amped two. We've got a Windows XP notepad, spiral notebook. We've got a Microsoft blue coffee mug to go in that bag. And we've also got a boxed PC edition of Halo. Not Halo 2, sorry, Halo. Sorry. But, you know, it's still probably the most popular game in the world right now. So uh, the lucky namespace of the day is System.g.wiz.this.swag.sucks. <laughs> and there you go. Well, that would be easy to remember. All right. Okay. So our guests, <laughs> we have two guests today, uh, Benjamin Mitchell and John Bristow. Uh, Benjamin is an independent contractor and a Microsoft regional director based in the U.K., Having worked as a lead developer and architect on some of the largest internet sites in Australia, he moved to London several years ago to be part of larger challenges. Wait a minute. I thought Australia was larger than London. Oh, maybe. Okay. That's just dumb, wasn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> he moved to a small island to get some larger challenges. Recent engagements have involved helping global banking clients create web service security frameworks. He's passionate about improving development practices through agile methodologies and making the web easier to use for applications with web services. He has spoken frequently at user groups across the UK, as well as TechEd San Diego and the upcoming TechEd Amsterdam. In almost 10 years of development experience, he's managed to pass 20 exams and holds MSCD, MSCE, and SCJP certs. He maintains a blog at benjaminm.net. 
And hey, Benjamin, how are you? I'm great, Cal. Okay. John Bristow is a systems analyst with Quadris Development Incorporated, a .NET training and consulting firm based in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Since its beta, John has been working feverishly with the .NET framework, evaluating, developing, and rigorously testing all facets of .NET offerings as they are released. John has a passion for, and is such a constant focus on, service-oriented architectures and associated XML web services, plumbing, and protocols. John is a Microsoft Regional Director and an MVP for ASP.NET. John, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you guys? Excellent. Well, I'm glad you both could make it. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, what's up? <laughs> you know, I just wanted to say a couple things. Um, Rory, you're not the only one who enjoys the smell of Meow Mix. So, you guys really? are sick. <laughs> Dude, it, smell, it smells really good, Carl. You just got to stick does. your head in a bag sometime and find out. You got to try it like Jeez. the other kids or else you're not going to know. And secondly, Benjamin has a much better synopsis of his bio than I do. I have to really improve on mine. Well, you know, the facts are there. Right. Yeah, okay. I think, I think that was if you, if you, if, even Cal if you want to keep that, it simple. Uh, the United Kingdom is bigger than Australia. Smaller island, right. bigger place. Smaller island, bigger place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> More people. So I guess maybe we should start with a state of things today. What are what state are web services in these days? And where Definitely, are we? So uh, I mean, I think uh, your chat client, Carl, is is, is showing us uh, just how good web services are in the real world today. You were saying you started this a week ago? Yeah. yeah. And so within a week, you're able to use the .NET framework and its support for web services to pull, pull out a chat. Actually, I wrote, the whole, I wrote the whole thing in an evening, actually. In an evening, even yeah. better. Yeah. And so you know, I think something like that shows us just how good things are with web services today. What he's, talking about, what he's talking about, for those who don't know, is a an application that I wrote that uses web services to do a simple sort of chat. where And, and it came out of necessity, too, because we were using the Yahoo uh, chat room for a while, and it just sort of sucked. I mean, you can't, can't get in there. So um, I'm looking for something interesting to do with web services, and a chat program isn't the, really the first thing that you think of when you say, you know, what am I going to do with web services? Because it's sort of stateful, and web services are stateless. So I just figured out how to bridge the gap there. Right. Definitely. And I think some of the other cool things, too, is that we're seeing people like Amazon and uh, Google implementing web services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, like you were saying, you, you built your chat app in a night. I mean, if you've ever gone to Amazon, you can basically register as a developer there. And then within about three minutes, you can download and have a list of books with uh, the image URLs uh, coming into Visual Studio just using web services. And, and they're actually using that to drive an enormous amount of their business. So. I think web services today are in a, a very healthy state, and things are just looking better in the future. As a matter right, of fact, and things are things are spawning some very exciting projects off that. You know, Benjamin mentions Amazon, but um, you're looking at various projects available off God.net in the workspaces that are incorporating web services and getting some some nice interoperability between uh, various applications. Rory, you did some work with the Amazon Web Services, right? Yep, I did my RSS for charity thing with AWS. And it, it, like Benjamin said, it really is that easy. You just sign up, you get going. Um, when I did it, you just grabbed uh, Whistle Definition and generated your, your classes and you were up and running. So it was a, it was, it's a very cool system to be able to tap into Amazon like that. And, yeah. um, yes, and you can do it, you know. Uh, I, mean, I think the point with Amazon yeah. too is that it's, it's proving not only that web services would uh, 
the wisdom can be consumed easily within .NET, but that's also an interoperable solution. So anyone on any platform exactly. can go out there and get that. Yeah, that's and also exactly. a viable business model. Sure. That's what struck me when I, I started downloading and using it. And I guess uh, you know, I didn't get as far as in, into it as Rory did. Uh, it was a bit confusing to, for me because it wasn't really written for .NET programmers. You know, it was uh, at a much lower level, at an XML level, and, uh, you know, connect to this website, send this header, you know, here's the soap envelope. But... Uh... Yeah, I think the thing is, the, as, as Rory is saying, the, the WSDL is the key there. If you get Visual Studio up and point it at the WSDL, then it will automatically create the proxy class for you. And then right. you're right, there's, there's a little bit that you've got to do in terms of understanding what the content of their messages is. But right. Assuming, really assuming you're playing nice, of course. Not a lot of people generate nice WSDL files. So. Right. That's true. Yeah. But you, it really should ins- insulate you from um, the, uh, the scary angle brackets, basically. We love angle brackets, don't we? <laughs> well, some of us do. <laughs> What um, how are how are web services in terms of interoperability these days? Because I've heard mixed results, and I, obviously Amazon has figured it out, and uh, they've got you know an API that works in Java, it works in Unix, it works wherever you use it. But um, what are the what are the challenges today? So I think the, the interoperability story is. Um, sort of an ongoing one. We're never going to get to the point where suddenly everything is interoperable. But I think what's different about web services versus other kinds of technology pushes in the past is just that there are so many people keen on working at it and uh, yeah. they're doing so much. So I think the basic stuff that that Amazon's using, uh, the, the WSI, the WS Interoperability Group, have done a great job coming out with a basic profile of the web service technologies, as, such as Wisdom and Serve 1.1 and right. saying, um, we're going to we're going to put in effort to make sure that there's an implementation of web services on lots of different platforms that can support this subset of the technologies. And has um, that panned so, out? Sorry, has that panned out? How's the Java support, for example? I think the Java support for the basic profile stuff is great. John, do you have any experience? Yeah, the, the Java stuff is is pretty good actually. Um, I've worked with uh, various toolkits, including the ETTK, which is the IBM offering. And uh, they they have some great support for for web services. Um, I would hesitate though if I were if I were specking out an application to target web services, I would hesitate going towards a Java pro- platform because with Asmx, it's just it's really really simple to get an endpoint up and running. So true. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's just awesome to see everyone come together, including IBM, BEA, uh, Microsoft, and so forth. Because it hasn't always been the case, right? I mean, I remember as early as a couple of years ago. Hearing from people who you know said that they Java Java's implementation was using a different version of SOAP than Microsoft's implementation, they were there was a little bit out of syncness happening. And yeah, unfortunately, we went through a bit of a complexity arc there. Um, SOAP one was was quite simple. Um, SOAP one point one was as probably as complex as we could have made it. And then now with SOAP one two, we're making it a little bit easier. So I think um, as you see that complexity start to uh, die down. And uh, you see the composability of the specs that are being augmented in. Uh, you're seeing the the toolkits uh, basically follow suit. Is SOAP 1.2 what's going to be supported in WIDBY? Uh, when is that supported in .NET? Um, I believe SOAP 1.2 is supported in WIDBY, yes, as well as in ASMAX. Okay. And that doesn't mean it won't support 1.1 either, right? No, no. No, we're exactly. getting away from the complexity of SOAP 1.1. Right. And I just wonder how that how that works, you know, when you go to create a web service, will it 
support all versions of soap? You know? Um, I haven't had much of a chance to delve into Whitby as much as I'd like. However, I have seen some some examples, and I believe that there are attributes to to control um, both the serialization as well as the the grokking of what's coming across the wire. Okay. We have a, a question from uh, somebody in the chat room, actually, uh, Michael Earls. He says he has a question for Benjamin and John. I heard last night that we shouldn't be using Wissy 2.0 because Indigo is, suppo- is supposed to replace all of that work and because Wissy 2.0 only has a two-year support agreement. Should large-scale enterprises avoid using Wissy 2.0? Should Wissy 2.0 only be used by agile small businesses? Thoughts? I guess we should, before you answer that question, let's, um, you know, we've we've given a little lip service to WSE uh, 2.0 and earlier versions, but let's, uh, what the hell, let's just yeah, redefine sure. it and tell people what it is. So WYSI is the Web Services Enhancements. It's basically a .NET class library that augments the .NET framework. So it's not part of the .NET framework, but it's it's basically seen as an augmentation to it. And essentially what it is is just an implementation of various WS star specifications that are out there in the wild. Um, kind of looking at the, the two-year, three-year um, outlook, you shouldn't definitely avoid WYSI. WYSI is a great toolkit. Um, but uh, certainly the future direction is Indigo. Um, if you look at Indi- if you look at Wizzy, Wizzy is is purely for enthusiasts. It's people who want to start working with the WS specifications today. Um, Indigo is kind of a refactoring of that, as well as bringing in some of other some other technologies, including enterprise services, MSMQ, and so forth. Just to sort of un- unpack the story, I mean, okay. what, what, what we've been talking about so far is just um, what you've got today in the .NET framework for doing web services, and we talked about. And the WSI basic profile, which is an organization that, that's sort of saying we're going to work with a set of technologies. The thing is that it is, um, it is basic. Uh, what, we're, what we're missing is support for things like security and policy and things like that. So there are all these WS specifications coming out. People talk about WS alphabet soup. Right. Uh, so what's happening is that um, having a specification but not being able to do anything with it is a bit frustrating. So Microsoft are interested in creating an implementation of all these WS specs mm-hmm. that developers can use as a way of testing out whether the spec is useful and whether it's good enough to um, you know, be sort of baked into the platform. And the first one wasn't all that useful, right? WSI 1.0? Well, it, it, did, it did some things, and it gave, it gave early adopters a chance to sort of um, put their toe in the water and see what the specifications yeah, were like. Right, right. Um, but definitely, it's, it's improving each time. The main point is that... It, it, so the first one came out... Um, in December of uh, the year before last, and uh, two shipped in a tech preview in the middle of last year, and now we've got the release uh, as a tech head. Um, basically, all of this is happening much, much faster than Microsoft's able to get out versions of the .NET framework. So WYSI is sort of a side project that can ship more frequently than the base framework. Right. That lets early adopters have a look at these specifications and, and also provides Microsoft with important feedback about whether they work in the real world or not. Right, and these specifications are in a high degree of churn mode, although that is starting to die down. But the nice thing about WYSI is it does give a, a small enough deliverable so that um, the WYSI team can get out um, actual bits to developers so they can start playing around with these specifications. And uh, another person in the chat room says, what would you do as an alternative? If you have a business need to use web services with security and policy now, what would be a better option if not WSI 2.0? Well, um, we just, that's, a, that's a great question, and, and it really highlights that um, the reason to use WSI is if you need some of the functionality that it provides. And, and, and if you need it today, there isn't an alternative other than hand-rolling it and writing it yourself. 
So Wizzy is basically, if, if you need any of the things that Wizzy provides, then you should definitely be using it today. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind is that uh, it will, if, when you do want to uh, sort of move to Indigo, when that ships at some stage in future, um, there may be some manual work required in order to get that to work. Right, but and just to reemphasize that point, um, Ben, ben was highlighting the fact that you can definitely get this up and running today. System.xml is perfectly fine to, to be doing all this stuff, but no one wants to work at that level. The nice thing about Wizzy is that it provides an object model so you can quickly and easily get these specs up and running in your applications. Above and beyond that, the standard object model, what is the reason, and, and define rolling your own. I mean, are you talk, when you say rolling your own security, are, are you talking about making your own encryption algorithms that low, or are you talking no, about no. using, using say, Rindle or something like that with, with keys? No, absolutely not. Um, in fact, uh, the specifications outline specifically what type of encryption uh, we're going to be using, which is XML encryption, um, a standard, of course. Um, we also use another standard in the security model, which is XML signature. Okay. Um, so the idea is that if you follow those specs, um, this basically gives um, a level of interoperability between platforms. Um, rolling your own, you know, it would involve a lot of parsing of the XML itself. It would be very tedious, and as I said, no one really wants to work at that well, level. Let me explain what I did with the chat room, because I do have security, and I, and I guess you could say I rolled my own, but I didn't have to touch XML at all. So what I did was um, I implemented what basically is done with SSL, meaning that I have a, a public RSS key that ships with the app. I have a, a, pro, a public-private key pair at the server. The client generates a, uh, a symmetric key, a Rindle key, and it transports that. All the, everything is transported as Base64 encoded binary data. So it transports, that, transports it as Base64 string, mm-hmm. gets uh, decoded, and then the server knows that that is the key to use with that client, and it keeps that around. So then all the transmission that happens with that client gets encoded uh, in you know serialized or however it is binary and then turned into a base 64 string and sent across that way so i didn't really have to touch xml at all um managing my own keys but other than that you know it's working great and and this is something that people are advising against well the thing the, the question i'd put there carl is i think your solution's great and, and obviously it's, it's it's working a treat here um as we're talking the uh, the thing is, if you wanted to talk to a Java client, oh, sure. Um, sure. then they, they'd have to understand what you're doing in the content of that message. So one Excellent. of the nice things Excellent that the WS security spec comes along and says is that actually the security isn't uh, isn't related to what's in the message, just like the stamp on the envelope isn't related to the content of the letter to your grandma inside the envelope. Right. Um, and it defines a standard way of putting the, that key information in a soap envelope header right. in a way that another platform could understand. And, and even better, the, the hope is that someone on a Java platform could just um, basically point their toolkit at your web service and the toolkit would handle uh, the decryption and right. uh, the verification of the signature that came with your message. Right. And this brings up another question. I understand the issue and I understand the answer to this question I'm about to pose, but the listeners might be having this question. <laughs> if what... And we've asked this before on the show, too. I, I think it was Don Box we asked. I'm not sure who it was. Maybe it was Michelle LaRue. But anyway, the question is, isn't there a danger in associating security with standards? In other words, if, if you're creating a toolkit to decrypt my keys, 
isn't that just making it that much easier for the unscrupulous out there to to hack me? Now, the answer is no, of course, but uh, mm-hmm. I want you to address that issue. So that what you're saying is if we let people know how we're doing our security, then that would make it more hackable? So, yes, that that's a fear that people have. Right, and, and so as you're saying there, the answer to that one is that, that modern cryptography is all about people knowing the algorithms of how you're doing your security, that, that uh, it's a very, very bad thing to keep the algorithm that you're using private because uh, there have been several public cases where there's been, that, there's been an algorithmic standard that's been shown to have security flaws in it. So the idea is that the algorithm should be public, but the key should be private. So understanding how the, the, encrypt, the, the algorithm works uh, is something that everyone can know, but you need to keep your key private in order to make the security successful. And actually it has the opposite effect. You're absolutely more secure if, uh, if the algorithm is public. Absolutely. It's it's just like a real lock. I mean, it's like the idea of thinking that your home is going to be insecure just because somebody knows that your lock operates with tumblers inside, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they still need the key to get in. So right, yeah, yeah. Unless they have a sort of tumbler deconstruction toolkit or something, but uh, but even so, you know, that's yeah. that's not a very good analogy. Called uh, called a boot. <laughs> yeah, boot. <laughs> He's a dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. So tell me what, as a developer, let's say I'm a VBNet developer, and because I am, as a matter of fact, and I install the web service extension enhancements, right? Not extensions. Yeah. Web service enhancements 2.0 toolkit. Uh, I know I've, you know, I've tried using 1.0 in the past, and it just seemed like way too much for me to figure out, uh, and, and I don't want to have that experience again. What is my developer experience like using this WYSI 2.0 toolkit? Well, if um, Benjamin and I actually recorded an MSDN TV session where we explained a little bit about how to get the canonical example out, which is um, the username token, um, it literally takes about five lines of code to get both encryption and signatures um, working inside your SOAP message. Um, from from a VB uh, developer's perspective, it's very intuitive. Um, Basically, the idea is that you you target the object model and you let the underlying plumbing do the do the heavy lifting. Cool. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, one of the so, so I think we should sort of track back a little bit and sort of say why would the VB developer um, be looking at using WYSI two? And and basically, there's there's four reasons I think that they need security on their web services, and they want to put that security inside the message rather than relying on a point-to-point protocol solution like HTTPS. Um, the second one is policy, and this is a really cool way that lets developers specify the expectations about the security, for example, on the messages that they send and receive. And this, this allows you to do things like signing and encrypting a message with a, a particular security token with no lines of code in some situations, so zero code at all. Wow. And then the the third thing is that Wizzy lets you... Uh, do web services over HTTP or over TCP, and it has support for using other protocols. So you don't need to host your web services in IIS anymore. You could have a TCP host, uh, for example, in a Windows service. And so this, this increases the flexibility of the kind of things you're able to do with web services. So even though you have this two lines of code, five lines of code that gets things up and working, you still have to manage your keys, right? That's right. You still have to create keys and keep them safe on the clients and keep them safe on the server. And uh, that, 
So it doesn't just make up keys for you and implement the security. It becomes a payload for your keys. Right? Well, in terms of your application where you're, you're dynamically generating the key, um, you can basically you can add that key to a token and put that on the SOAP header and then send that around. So it just provides you a standard way of, of describing and transporting that key information. Yeah. Depending upon what security model, though, you're right. I mean, we still face some of the hurdles of PKI or, or public key. Uh, infrastructure hurdles that we face all the time. Right. And that would be no different with WYSI or without, right? Um, no, because we're working with infrastructure. Although, you know, WYSI does provide you some some excellent APIs for you to access things like uh, secure stores and so forth. Oh, oh okay. All right. Cool. But uh, the whole the whole notion of, of key management um, is, is still one of those topics that we're, we're still trying to figure out and make, make even easier. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah, and it, it's a tough thing, though, isn't it? Because ultimately, keeping those keys safe shouldn't. It, it can't be a standard. It's not like you should. Everybody should make a C colon backslash keys directory, and that's where you should put your keys. You know, that's right. silly. Security security is admittedly a tough tough thing to get right. Um, but we, you know, we have tools available to us to make it easier. Yeah. But the nice thing too, I'd say, I'd say, Carl, is that the the spec is done really nicely here. It, it basically just says if you are going to send security information around, here's what it should look like in the yeah. in XML in the SOAP header. Yeah. But it doesn't actually say it, it doesn't mandate exactly what kind of algorithm you use or right. what kind of keys you use. Right. It, it, it's it's very nice in that it, it's pluggable like that. So if a better one came along in a couple of years, yeah. you could just put that one in in the same place. Um, so. You're absolutely right. The standards, the standards haven't gone crazy. They're not mandating exactly how you should do your security. It's just a very flexible description of, um, since you are using security, how you can describe it on the SOAP message. And, and on that note, as far as mandating um, what use cases you should be doing, I mean, the, the specs themselves give always an addendum that says, um, we recommend or we strongly recommend doing such and such yeah. with secu- in relation to security and so forth. Right. Hey, uh, can I just give a quick plug to Carl? You, you were talking about the VB.net developer yeah. having a great experience out of the box with Wizzy 2. Mm-hmm. The Wizzy team have done a superb job of putting all of their samples in C Sharp and VB. Oh, good. So um, you can just open up the product and go to the, uh, the samples directory and basically set up your website and then, um, so, so, sorry, set up the virtual directories and then play to your heart's content all in VB land. Awesome. I love it. It is. Sweet. Well, uh, guys, sit tight while we uh, listen to some music and uh, talk to our sponsors, and uh, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of the hour. With stay, Michelle. Stay with Michelle LaRue Bustamante, who just showed up, so stay tuned.
so old I know, I know, I know, I know Nothing I can do but let it go got so much uh so many good comments about uh, the live music on last week's show we decided to do some more i decided to do some more so uh play this old song called uh, is you is i got a gal it's always late every time we have a day but i love her Yes, I love her I'm gonna walk right up to that gate And see if I can get it straight Cause I need her I'm gonna ask her Is you is, is you ain't my baby The way you acting lately makes me doubt Still my baby, baby It seems my flame in your heart's done gone out Yeah, a woman is a creature that's always been strange Just when you show up when you find she's gone and made a change Oh, is you is, or is you ain't my baby 
Maybe baby's found somebody new, yeah Or is my baby still my baby too? Whoa, yeah Don't be the devil, take it to vice yeah, a woman is a creature, always a little bit strange. When you're sure of one you find, she hold a baba rootin' and I do it. It's it's way, my baby. Maybe baby's found somebody new. is my baby, still my baby, too. That's the sound of one hand clapping right there. <laughs> All right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce to you a new sponsor for .NET Rocks, and I'm talking about Dundas Charts. And these guys make chart controls for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms applications, 100% managed code. Let me just lay on some features here for you, and then I'll give you some great testimonials from their customers, some of whom you already know. Uh, great features. 100% fully managed code, great looking charts, they can render in a bunch of formats including flash and SVG animation, full object oriented design, as I said 100% managed code, no p-invoke, no ActiveX, they're fully integrated into Visual Studio with full IntelliSense, you can get just about 99% of everything you need in two or three lines of code, drag, drop, boom, bam, you got your charts. Uh, you, of course if you're into customization you can customize to your heart's content. These are not just static charts, they're controls, so they're interactive. Some have scroll bars, some have little sliders that you can move up and down. You have really cool things like animation, you have uh, splines, you've got scrolling, and uh, 3D, 2D, this D, that D, just everything, anything that you can think of in charts, they've got it. So the key to enjoying and understanding Dundas Chart is to go up to their website and download an, a fully functional evaluation copy. This isn't something that's going to blow up or, or stop working after a while. It's fully, fully functional. The only caveat is they've got their watermark across the graph. Other than that, you can do everything that you can do with the, with the uh, release version. Fully functional. And now let me tell you about some of their customers. Microsoft uses Dundas Charts for .NET technology and SQL Server 2000 reporting services. CompuWare uses Dundas Chart technology within Dev Partner Studio. NetIQ uses it. Siemens uses it. Check out this quote from uh, Ben Haraway at Siemens. Overall, Dundas Chart for .NET was a blessing. From the free trial to the easy installation, exceptional documentation and examples, great output and customization ability, and then the icing on the cake, helpful and persistent support staff. We were very happy with every aspect from Dundas, and there is no doubt we will look to them for solutions in the future. Uh, Jonathan Goodyear from AngryCoder.com says, The first thing that struck me as I dropped the Dundas chart control onto a web page for the first time was the clean, well-done wizard that immediately popped up. 
Chris Sells says, Not only was the Dundas chart more than full-featured enough, but the documentation was definitely geared toward getting a charting newbie started fast. John Maver from CompuWare Corp. says, I don't think I could imagine a better experience with a third-party vendor. Brian Welker from Microsoft says, Our developers like the fact that they have full control over the chart features through a well-designed managed code API. And um, when we interviewed Stephen Forte on .NET Rocks, geez, a long time ago now, uh, he told us about a, an application he wrote for Zagat online survey. He did their website. He redid their whole website and used Dundas everywhere. And he, was, he made a point of saying on that show how excellent um, these charts were. And that was back then. It was a couple years ago. So here's the deal. Go up to www.dundaschart.com. That's D-U-N-D-A-S. D-U-N-D-A-S chart.com. Download a free evaluation copy. Tell them Carl sent you and uh, rock and roll with charts. Dundas Charts. Advanced technology, advanced results. Talk to you a little bit about uh, our old favorites, ActorReports.net, up there by Data Dynamics at datadynamics.com. Heard me talking about them on the show quite a bit, and uh, there's good reason for it. Let me just tell you what it's all about. It's not about all about enterprise reporting and big honking servers and a lot of complex processes and expensive licenses. It is about designing reports including them in with your applications, with your web applications or your Windows applications, and uh, deploying them appropriately. Easy, easy, easy to do. And very powerful, too. You get grouping, you get uh, headers and footers and controls, and you can use any controls you want on the design surface. You don't have to just use their controls uh, and their data sources. Uh, It's really, really awesome. And as far as the web, their output options include PDF and HTML, and uh, just straight text, if you want. I mean, come on. You have a lot of options, is what I'm saying. So do yourself a favor and go up to uh, datadynamics.com. Check out all the other controls they sell up there, too. It's not just about activereports.net. They've been in the business for a long time. I'm sure you're going to like it. www.datadynamics.com. And we're back with Benjamin Mitchell and John Bristow and somebody new who has joined the flock here just uh, during the break, Michelle LaRue Bustamante. How are you? Well, hello, Carl. Well, how are you? Good. Thanks for asking. How are, are you? Are we going to have to bleep out every other word that you say here or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll try and keep it free. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you've been listening to the show? I haven't been listening. I actually just saw Benjamin and John were recording .NET Rocks on their IM. So I said, hey, you want me to call in? Yeah, because it's sort of, you know, what we're talking about, you know something about. And, uh, no, we, actually not at all. Yeah, we just want to have some fun <laughs> and tell some jokes, right? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we know. Uh, so what we've already talked about just a bit to bring you up to speed is uh, the state of Windows web, well, the state of web services, the state of the WESI 2.0 uh, enhancements and the user experience or the programmer experience with those tools and sort of the interoperability issues and hurdles that we've had to get through to get to here. And um, the, the picture is looking pretty good for web services going forward, it sounds like to me. Um, the things that we haven't talked about uh, in terms of what's missing, we've ta- addressed the security issue. But what about addressing the addressing issue? Yeah, so um, one of the things, when web services um, first came out, not all of the information, it, uh, this kills me. The SOAP model is based on a simple idea of an envelope with a header and a body. Um, but when, when they first shipped, they didn't put all the address uh, on the envelope. Basically, Some of the address went on the protocol. So when you were sending it to someone, some of the address would be in the HTTP header hmm. rather than actually part of the SOAP message. So it's a bit like um, instead of writing uh, the address of your grandma on the front of the envelope, you tell the postman that it's for your grandma. And, um, <laughs> How many letters do you write to your grandma? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I'm, I'm getting it now and I am, but she did write a letter to me last week. Um, so so, so what, what's happening in, in, in WYSI is that they've updated the WS addressing spec and basically corrected this error uh, so that we can now put all the information about where this message should go inside the SOAP header and, and uh, it can be completely independent of the transport. And, and the cool thing here is that you could, for instance, send a message partway over SMTP and then there would be enough information within the message for the SMTP endpoint to know to send it over HTTP uh, to a second point. Right, and just emphasizing on that point, you know, addressing is so critical to making this this whole web services thing work. I mean, I'm with Benjamin on this one. It was kind of shocking when you're looking at at the SOAP model and you're like, where is this? Where is the addressing stuff? And uh, the WS addressing is meant to to, to pardon the pun, address this issue. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so the idea is that you're going to have any number of intermediaries uh, that may operate over uh, a variety of transports, and you want to make sure that the actual location of where the message is, is bound to, uh, it's actually persisted as part of the, the envelope. Okay, and, and so that's addressed in WSI 2.0 as well? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Now, what about policy? So policy is a, is a very interesting subject. Um, the notion behind policy is that um, we have characteristics, which we like to call assertions. Assertions are basically uh, kind of like statements that we can make about uh, service endpoints. And essentially what they say is um, they state things like characteristics and qualifications behind a service. So I may have a policy on my endpoint that says um, I require a security token persisted in the SOAP envelope. Um, Alternatively, I may also want you to enforce encryption. If you're going to use encryption, I want you to use this standard. So policy is a way of actually decorating, um, if you will, uh, service endpoints with additional metadata to provide additional information to plumbing. So things like um, toolkits like WYSI and ETTK will use these to uh, to provide more semantic detail um, when working with web services. So 
So just to drill it down, if you're a VB programmer and you want your web service to be secure, but you don't want to have to write all the code that, te- that checks whether a particular token's come in on the header and whether the body was encrypted or not, policy gives you a way of describing those requirements in an XML file somewhere else other than your code right. uh, so that your code can just be about the business logic. That's something and, else to uh, worry about that. Right. Yeah, exactly. We had the same sort of notion in ComPlus, or now as we call enterprise services, this notion of interception. And interception works in the same way with the policy enforcement. Um, we, have this, we have this basically a policy document that says any message bound for this endpoint or that has these criteria like a SOAP action or something like this, um, you can say that I have these policy constraints against it. Um, what that allows you to do is start ripping out all the infrastructure code that you would normally have to write, like applying a signature or applying an, a, a cryptographic signature, um, and uh, start having the plumbing enforce it. So as, as you'll find that when you start in, enforcing policy, a lot of your code starts to go away, and the, and the plumbing internal just takes care of it all. Hmm. So for example, in your app, Carl, you wouldn't have to uh, check anything about the key. You could just write a policy assertion that says, any message coming into my chat server uh, should be signed and encrypted. Right. And Wizzy will basically. Uh, and what happens do that if it's you. not? The right. cool thing is that the policy enforcer um, sends an exception before it even gets to your code. Oh, cool. So it'll send an exception back to the sender? Well, essentially, exactly. it'll send a no fault, which will get serialized and it's just an exception, but huh. generally, yes. <laughs> So Dave Bost from the web from the uh, website uh, sent us a message that says, "Let's ruffle some feathers. What's the recommended approach for passing around your data in an SOA implementation? Custom classes or data sets? Oh, oh data sets all the way. Oh God, <laughs> data sets are bad. All right, let's hear you, Michelle. Thank you." God, thank oh, God. I think we that. already, isn't that just a de facto agreement that data sets are bad? Not on last week's not, show. <laughs> they're, not inter, they're not interoperable in terms of their serialization format at all. So we certainly can't use those cross platforms. Um, they certainly carry some bloat with them in yeah. terms of the schema information. And that's not really necessary for the messaging. Yeah. And so. And there's just all kinds of other incompatibilities that sur- that arise from that. Now that we can do data binding against uh, custom data types, we really don't need data sets anymore to fill a data grid. So It makes sense to use the simplest thing available, in my opinion. To use the absolute yeah. simplest structure of any kind with the simplest everything possible and to just not complicate it too much. I mean... I don't. See, I personally don't see the reason to use a data set if if you're just passing around data that consists of a few strings and a few ints and a few this and a few that and well, that's and true. Maybe some arrays. Yeah, and I think that's really that accounts for most of our data. Really, in in a way, it's it's easier for most developers to deal with data sets if if you're talking about <laughs> you know coming up with a domain model all by yourself. And if you're talking about real data instead of just a few strings. Yeah. And I agree with you. I'm not. I'm not saying data sets are good, or we should be using data sets to pass data all around the world and through services and whatnot. But I'm saying that the, the average developer out there who, you know, for the first oh six months before .NET was released, and then the, the two years afterwards has been hearing nothing but data sets, data sets. Well, and it's also appropriate for a Windows only kind of uh, solution, yeah. where the only reason to use a web service is for port eighty. Right. Yeah. I think I think web services sure. should avoid the use of data sets. Um, I like to use 
Scott Hanselman's quote that he put on his blog, returning data sets from web services is the spawn of Satan represents all that is truly evil in the world. <laughs> I totally agree with him. You know, he, it, no one put it better than that. So. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, because I've been following that debate and just trying to... I've been meditating on Doug Purdy's post. Doug Purdy's one of the program managers for the Indigo team. His argument is that uh, that it might not be nice, XML, that you send in your message, but that someone at the other end could write something that understands it. So it's practically not very very interoperable, but there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with sending a whole bunch of XML with a message. I, I think... The second point that Michelle made, the pertinent one, that it, it sends a lot of garbage that's not really relevant to the message right. uh, along with it. Mm-hmm. Right, and particularly if you've already made changes to the data set that haven't been committed and you start producing diffgrams. But we're talking about SOA here. Well, you're really talking yeah. about the difference between querying uh, a database, getting a data set back, and quickly being able to bind that to a data grid versus formatting it into some sort of intelligent object model that would be your business layer. And on the server side, yeah. you're usually dealing in object models. On the client side, I might agree that if you receive a data set because it's just a single-tier application, it's easier to just bind that. But really, what kind of application is that then if it's not hitting a remote server of some sort? It's a toy, right? Right. Hmm. And then you have to consider the possibility, I may not be a .NET developer. I may be a Java junkie. And so if I fire up Eclipse or something like that and I start pulling down WSDL files that serialize a, a big XML blob, I'm going to have no way in which to know how, how I have to deserialize that into an object model. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like the people who are using data sets in web services are using, and this is what it comes down to, it's a Windows-only architecture. Using it and as remoting instead yeah, of... Yeah, for, for remoting instead of... Insta- exactly. Um, the poor man's remoting, it's, essentially. It's, it's fair to say that it's interop-unfriendly, basically. Yeah, I, and I'll agree with that. So, so. If, if you're serious about interop, then the, the data set will make a, a right. lot of pain for someone at the other end to understand what you're, what you're sending them. Right, and I think that's the big difference between the arguments, whether, uh, you know, it's not to use data sets or not to use data sets, it's when... When you know it would be appropriate in a Windows-only architecture, exactly. But if we, I think if we go back to the question that was the guy who wanted to ruffle some feathers about what we're going to be passing around in an SOA context, yeah, and well, I think okay. that's where yeah, data sets that's become most problematic. Yeah. yeah, he says it would be nice to take the schema designer in Visual Studio and generate your custom class as opposed to a type data set. I'm sure this tool exists, but I haven't found it. Um, yep, yep, it I will. Agree with that. Well, I actually had a question. Um, earlier, John mentioned WS star specs. Okay, so w- w- what is this stuff? I mean, like, what is WS star? W- what does that amount to? What are we talking about? Great, great question. Um, so the WS specifications are basically a set of, there's been more than enough specifications published, um, but essentially the WS specifications represent those specifications that um, target particular composable attributes of web services. So, Typically, they represent what we like to call horizontal protocols, uh, protocols okay. that cross-cut application domains or verticals, things like security, things like routing and addressing and so forth. So when we refer to them lovingly as WS star, that's what we're talking about. I call so them they're, WS they're like, Right. They're, they're kind of like uh, web service building blocks, essentially? Exactly. Or? The whole notion behind um, WS star is that they're composable. So you'll have a certain set of specs targeted towards security. You'll have another set of specs targeted towards um, addressing. Um, you'll have another set of specs targeted towards metadata. But 
these specs don't always operate on the SOAP level, right? Some of them work in other areas like WSDL. So an example of that is WS Policy Attachment, which basically tells you about how you can augment UDDIT models and WSDL's, um, WSDL definitions with, uh, with policy. So they're not all working with SOAP. Some of them are working with other aspects of web services. Okay. And, and as a .NET developer, how would I go about making use of the WS Star components? Wizzy! I mean, Wizzy! All right, exactly. there we go. <laughs> all comes down to Wizzy. Exactly. Well, the other advantage here is that they're, they're canonical, right? I mean, one of, one of the things about web services that's intimidating for a lot of people, including me, is that there is so much stuff. I mean, exactly. XML, it's three little letters, right? And it's yeah. like the biggest cluster of technology certainly you know is. in the universe right and uh, and it's hard to get, it's hard to really wrap your head around it and it's not, i like the idea that there is one canonical set of components that are going to provide this functionality right. and that i can take advantage of easily in code okay so and another, the I, other nice thing about, about that is you know people have we've we've had this forever right we've had this this whole argument of let's standardize let's let's agree on a format i mean we have this we have the same notion with corpus sure. but the nice thing about with with, with web services is that not only are we trying to achieve interoperability, but we have uh, agreement across many, many vendors. So you'll notice that WS uh, Security was not only um, spec'd out by Microsoft, but also by IBM and VeriSign. Right. Right. So Very you know, these are big players who are coming together who are saying, yes, we have got to agree on these things because we need to move the industry forward. And the standards are at a good level too. You know, it's well, they're not really standards. That's the other thing. Right, their specifications. Specs. All right, well, the specs right. are at a good level. They're at, they're at a level that just barely approaches into the application layer. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yep. And that's good because you know it's like the data set. You know, the, if the data set, God forbid, would become the de facto standard for SOA, <laughs> that would be a spec. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's at a great level. The, the, the goal are, here is to bring it up into the air. And have it consumable by everyone right. via various toolkits like the ETTK and WYSI and so forth. Right, but you can do whatever you want in your app. Yeah, bring, bring, bring the head out of the water for a breath of air and then push it down back in by pushing that stuff into the infrastructure. So eventually when we start agreeing on how these specs are, are, are worked out, we're going to be pushing it deeper and deeper into the infrastructure. So if you look at how um, the messaging architecture is moving, it's moving towards uh, this code name Indigo, we're looking at a more simple, a simple API to target these specs so that it's just as easy as, you know, applying an attribute to your class to get security up and running. I think it's oh, also nice. important, though, to note that we are going to, for still some time to come, need to understand the XML to some extent because the interoperability between platforms on the WS star level is not there today. And in order to find... W- reasons why, you know, this encrypted token is not working at my destination web service that might be open source or some other platform, I need to understand what the XML should look like by the spec. I need to be able to go to the spec, look up what are the encryption, uh, asymmetric encryption algorithms that are supported by that platform, and then I need to understand my platform and know how to override that behavior so that it follows the same rule. So we still need to be able to dig like that today. And I think even with Indigo, we're still going to have to dig a little bit for some of the outliers. I, th- I think, so, so the key thing is that, um, in t- Rory, in terms of your question, the, the job of the, the .NET team basically is to give you an object model that means that you don't have to 
uh, go down to the very scary XML level and understand right. all the WSX. Yeah. And then with Michelle's point and what John said about Indigo, the nice thing with Indigo is it lets you play at both levels. If you want to, you can you can stay up high and just add attributes and everything will work nicely. But if you do want to go down and munge the XML and, and you enjoy being a plumber or you have to be a plumber to get your solution to work, there are lots of really nice refactored interfaces that you can use to get down there and do your work. Okay, so that that's interesting to me because we're, we're essentially talking about working with the XML. And one thing that I've found... Um, especially in, talk, in talking about the low-level work going away, is that I've never worked in an interop situation where I didn't have to go down and tinker with the XML to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is this something, I mean, just shifting you know, gears a little bit, is this something that, do you, do you actually see this going away, possibly? Because I've never encountered the situation myself. And it might just be that maybe the specs are good, the ideas are good, but developers just aren't implementing them, and there are issues there. But, I mean, thoughts, I guess, like on that. So I think I think what's happening. I mean, what you really want is the big vendors who who write the toolkits you use as a developer to get together and sort this out essentially. And they're having uh, what they call workshops uh, on each of these standards, where they I think they, they ask everyone to bring a plate of food, you know, like a savoury plate, and they all get into the same room and they they have a problem and they they basically do an interrupt workshop and prove that they can talk to each other. So in the, in the long run, I see that the vendors are going to be producing object models that that are interoperable on the wire level. The problem is that we're in a halfway house at the moment. We're not there yet. So right. You're right. Most yeah. practical interrupt situations today, you will be tooling as a plumber down at the XML level. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that as as people start using WSI 2.0 and solutions start bubbling up, you know, of implementations that have succeeded, you're going to see some probably some frameworks evolve and some tools. Uh, let me talk a little bit about reliable messaging. This is something that we talked with Don Box a bit on our ta- on our first show with him. Well, our only show with him, but we've talked to him since. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the whole problem with reliable messaging is that just being port 80 isn't enough these days. You, in order to make sure that your message gets from me to you, through a through a web service, uh, and some of the barriers that he talked about were like uh, NAT, you know, network address translation, where you know a single IP address is shared among lots and lots of different clients that have these ten dot addresses. Um, what are some of the other barriers to reliable messaging, and how does WSE two O address those? So, so you've gone. You've gone right to the point, Carl, of, uh, you've gone to the edge of WYSI 2, basically. Um, a lot of people talk about the next generation of web services being secure, reliable, and transacted. So WYSI 2 covers off the secure aspect of that, but the reliable messaging and the transactions are, are things where we're still uh, waiting to have a, uh, an implementation of those standards that we can play with as developers. So Indigo is the thing that's going to make that work. Well, actually, I was, I was going to say Wizzy 2 is out now. And, uh, if you look at Rebecca Deus' uh, blog and um, the, the rest of the Wizzy team, they're keen to hear customer feedback about what they should do in Wizzy 3. So it's, mm. it's highly likely there'll be a Wizzy 3 before Indigo. Right. Yeah. Uh, and reliable messaging is definitely one of the higher priority items that they're hoping to target. I mean, I think the important thing is reliable messaging is sort of built on top of the protocols. So it's, it's a higher level thing than the protocols. Uh, to manage, uh, to right. ensure that you get messages, you know, zero or more times. Uh, okay. To get assertions about that. Maybe, maybe think about an email that you send, and you have no idea if it really got there. And especially now with all the spam filters, we don't know if anybody read it. 
Okay. So you send a message, a web service message. How do we know through acknowledgement that somebody received that message? I see. And, you know, in order to do that, we need to have a way to receive the acknowledgement, which means, in theory, we need an endpoint on the other side. So now right. we're talking two-way communication. I got it. And this is particularly important because, you know, we're not inherently tied to a request-response protocol with HTTP. Web services are completely, in, in, in theory, transport agnostic. So some of them will, in, in terms of one-way messaging or in terms of an asynchronous call, we may not get a response back for a long period of time. Do you think the term SOA was devised just because we can't say web services anymore because they're too tightly defined already? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Is that a fair assumption, Michelle? Uh, it's Well, SOA was defined so that people at the executive level could talk about something cool, too, I think. But. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question. I know we were discussing uh, at the beginning of the show how easy it was to do web services with .NET. And um, thinking about that uh, contrasted with uh, the architectural thinking of SOA is it's, it, it's not really supposed to be so easy. It's supposed to solve a lot of problems that aren't actually easy to solve. Uh, and, and I think there's there may be a disconnect there when you talk about web services and how easy it is. Most people using web services today, the Amazon Web Services, an example, are using the RMI model, remote method indication. You're, you're calling an object somewhere across the line and getting just a piece mm-hmm. of data back. I think SOA is, is, is a lot more than that. Um, and and it, it, it's funny when I think about it, is it, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but you can tell me what you think of this, is that you, you don't need to use web services to have a service-oriented architecture, and just because you're using web services doesn't mean you have a service-oriented. Okay, that's correct. Yeah, yeah you definitely so what have is to change. it? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> so you definitely have to change your line of thinking in terms of targeting something that will be. God, I don't like using SOA so much, but you that is SOA friendly in a sense. So um, there's an excellent book by Tim Ewald that was that was published quite a while ago, that was called Transactional Com Plus, in which he talked about how you try and make your calls. If you're going to go with, with a message-based architecture, you try and make your calls that, that go off to, say, a Com Plus server, uh, more, more uh, chunky and less chatty. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the, the, the ideas behind um, this notion of, of going to a message-based um, architecture, this notion that um, I want to make sure that I get most of my semantic details in a one-off message and send that rather than making little invocations. Um, this idea of thinking about objects and method invocation really doesn't apply so much now into uh, service-oriented architecture. Okay. So a little bit higher level than that. Exactly. Think of it as chunks okay. of business logic right. that just live and you can use. So it's a mindset not even just a development mindset, but also a business-level mindset in terms of how you structure your enterprise and or your public-facing product offering. And so at the heart of it, what's really the benefit of that? It really, it's reusability. So it's object-oriented programming on steroids, right? It's, it's taking that to a completely grand scheme where it goes outside of just the component level and it becomes at the application level, at the department level, at the company level and at the industry level. So you can take it to whatever level you need to implement it. Some industries will actually implement SOA across communication partners, like think of insurance. You might have a carrier and an agent or broker and a vendor that all need to share data. 
and they might implement standards between them. And each of them, there might be multiple types of carriers that, you know, fulfill policies in the industry that all do it the same way. But behind the scenes, we don't know how they really do it, right? It's It could go as far as that or as simple as just applications from the accounting department speaking to your production environment to bill customers. So um, rolling back a little bit, um, Benjamin, you're probably watching the chat room here and somebody named <laughs> Snickers says, what about sending a message that says begin transaction? That one gets there and the next, but the one that says end transaction does not make it. Does the remote system then just hang for a few days with the transaction blocked? Well, I mean, I think there's there's two points here. So, how, how do you find out about a message uh, not getting through? And the second one is, uh, if you are going to do transactions, do you really want to be doing them uh, across service boundaries? So, reliable message, reliable reliable messaging will basically um, tell you if a message doesn't get through, and then you can respond to that event. Uh, so, you can wind a transaction back, and, and you can configure how long you wait. Basically, how much how much effort you're prepared to put in before you you decide that the message can't get through. Um, the second you define like with, a timeout or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. With okay. transactions, uh, the point is that giving someone else a lock, uh, which is uh, you know, locking something effectively in a transaction and uh, waiting for that and doing that over a service boundaries is something that you might want to think about. There's two models. You can either um, work at that begin-end transaction level, and that's described in uh, WS Transaction, or you can go to a higher level and just... Uh, what they call business process, which is where you try and do something and you act as if it will be done, but you have uh, a compensating action that can be done uh, if it fails. So the idea is, for example, with uh, airline systems, uh, you don't actually have a transaction on booking a seat on a plane. You basically just go in a queue of people who may possibly get a seat on the plane. That's not sorted out till uh, check-in time. Uh, if something happens, then basically within two days, you'll just roll off that reservations list if you haven't confirmed um, your payment for the flight, but there aren't any locks being held in a transaction sense. Well, if you guys would like to uh, just sit tight for a second, uh, we'd like to get this item out of the way. It's a segment we do in the show. We try to do it every week, but uh, this week there's a particular good reason to do it. This is the Linux vulnerability of the week. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me fight. And so the purpose of this is not to uh, wave a finger at Linux users and tell them they have a bad operating system or anything. It's to uh, silence the zealots out there who say that Windows is by nature a buggy and uh, untrustworthy operating system and that Linux does not have bugs and does not crash. So every week we like to pick uh, from a list of uh, Linux vulnerabilities that are posted, usually at linuxsecurity.com slash vulnerabilities. And usually there's quite a few of them, aren't there? There's quite a few of them. This week, uh, it's a doozy. <laughs> New Linux security hole found uh, June 14th. This is from eWeek.com. A Linux bug was recently uncovered by a young Norwegian programmer that, when exploited by a simple C program, could crash most Linux 2.4 or 2.6 <laughs> distributions running on an x86 architecture. That's bad, isn't it, Joe? <laughs> Unix is <laughs> quote using this exploit to crash Linux systems requires the uh, user to have shell access or other means of uploading and running the program like CGI bin and FTP access. End quote reports the discoverer Avin <laughs> Sather and it's made. There's some characters in there I don't recognize. 
Quote, the program works on any normal user account and root access is not required, Sather reported. Quote, this exploit has been reported to use to take down several lame free shell providers services. Uh, running code, you know, will damage a system intentionally and hacking in general is illegal in most parts of the world and strongly discouraged. Along with the code needed to use the exploit, Sather also posted several patches to 2.4 and 2.6 kernels that will keep the exploit from crashing systems. So, you know, they have security holes, they patch them, hey, just, just like Windows, right? But that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a particular doozy there. Uh, Linus Torvalds already has the problem well in hand. He said, quote, I fixed it in my source code tree a few days ago, so it's in the current snapshots, and if it, and if I wasn't in the middle of a move to Portland, Oregon, no way! Linus Torvalds is moving to Portland, Oregon. I'd have released a 2.6.7 already. As it is, I'll hopefully have it done by tomorrow, June 15th. But of course all the sysadmins so, out there are going to patch the kernel themselves by writing the code. Right. So, so there... <laughs> Misty Bull, let's you and me fight. <laughs> in any case, eventing. <laughs> hey, eventing hey, in web services. Rory, before yep. you guys continue, if you uh, run that code, I'll drive to Portland and I will uh, do something bad to you and your dog. <laughs> oh, you mean if I do it on your Debian system? <laughs> Don't you worry. My dog is What's safe. What's the matter? Don't you have a patch, Jeff? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I care more about uptime than uh, than a stable and secure system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, you know, every once in a while, cool. just a doozy comes along that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Okay. <laughs> I wonder how our, our resident zealot, Chris Anthony, is taking the news. And how he's doing I think doing he's kind of cooled down a lot. Yeah, he's I think, I think he's has. cooled down. I think he's kind of drifted. And he was talking about taking a job, and maybe he did, and that's why we haven't heard much from him. So. Huh. Oh, well, so let's talk about events. Events are kind of a problem when you have a web server involved, aren't they? I mean, they sort of uh, mean you have to have delegate data laying around. You have to know something about the client. And, geez, events just seem like something that requires a server in order to, in order to make happen. How, how is that going to work? Well, it depends on how you, do, how you look at it. I mean, with Wizzle, we've had events which they call um, notifications for quite a while. They're essentially one-way output messages. The problem is, is that, you know, I being, you know, jrandom.net developer is going to just fire up my environment and, and start writing out an ASMX right. um, program. The problem is that is that, you know, it's based on a request-response model. So the you idea have to behind, pull for it, in other words. Sorry? You have to pull for it, in other words. Exactly. So, you know, I'm going to send a request for you and say, do you have any... Do you have anything to tell me useful? And that's essentially what I'm doing in my chat program too. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the one of the specifications that has come out um, is WS eventing, and WS eventing is basically um, a very simple spec, arguably one of the simplest specs out there, okay. um, that describes a mechanism in which um, clients can subscribe to a what we call an event source. Um, an event source is essentially um, an endpoint or a service that will broadcast events uh, periodically. And what WS oh. eventing? Sorry, I just reacted with an O. Oh, oh, excellent. Okay. So it broad it broadcasts events, and this is a uh, a sort of a push model. Then 
Um, exactly. Uh, the notion here is that WS eventing will will describe some basic some basic element types. So um, it has it basically has defined um, a subscribe element, a renew element, as well as um, an uh, unsubscribe element. So, so does the it idea here is that yeah. I being an event sync or um, a client, I want to talk to an event source, and I want that event source to notify me when certain events occur. Now, does that um, require? Sorry, does that require a web server on the client? No, not necessarily. Um, it can. This can happen over any transport. Remember, web services. Really, the west, the the web and web services is really a misnomer. You do not require HTTP for for services. Um, the idea here is that I send a request, um, a, a request. Uh, sorry, a, a uh, subscribe message right. to an events uh, source okay. saying I want to be notified when something happens. Um, at your end, um, you provide it some details saying, "Here's where I want um, events to be sent to, and here is um, the lifetime in which I would like this subscription to last." Okay. The event source then sends a reply back saying, "Okay, here's an ID referencing your event, um, sorry, your event subscription, and I will send you notifications periodically." But unless you, I mean, when it comes down to it, unless you have a connection that stays open somewhere, or you have a server that can handle requests coming in, you're going to have to pull for it. Well, there, are, there, there, is, that, there is that idea. But if you look at um, the variety of transport and messaging layers that we have available to us, um, we could easily have it pointing to you know, a queuing mechanism for, for, um, for certain events that may get sent back. So, right. and, now you're, and now you're losing your port 80 firewall friendliness, though. Exactly. I mean, that, yeah. that is one of the caveats, right? So, right. Um, you know, arguably there was a lot of work being done um, on the push model uh, back in you know the mid '90s. Um, are we getting back to that stage where you know it's going to be all push? Not necessarily, um, but certainly eventing in the web services world in a platform neutral, runtime neutral way is, is certainly an important feature to have. Cool. And so this is the stuff that's all coming, right? Um, um, the eventing is all. Well, you said we have a, an eventing spec now. We do, we do, we definitely do, and uh, there's been an inter- there's been a, an interop workshop that's been conducted at Microsoft. Okay. Um, in addition to that, there's probably about nine or ten implementations that I know of sitting around uh, in various on various websites that I've seen. Um, some of which target different frameworks. Um, I know that there are a few that target WYSI, um, mm-hmm. and there are a few that target other other runtimes as well. Okay. The uh, the the truth of the matter is that um, you know we'll, we'll eventually see this in, in some version of the messaging stack, uh, assuming that the eventing um, spec itself is adopted. The problem is, is that we have three specs that, that identify events. We have WS eventing, we have WS events, and we have WS notifications. <laughs> All of these have been published by various vendors. Yeah. The one that Microsoft endorses is my, um, WS eventing. Okay. So it can get a bit confusing when you look at this, and you know we had this, we've had this, this whole WS star churn for a while now. I mean, we've had different specs that target the same issue but deal with it in different ways. Mm. It's just one of the natures right. of web services business, I guess. Now, looking forward to Indigo, um, one of the things Don Box told us was that it is going to run on Windows XP. Has that changed? Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay. Not Windows 2000 client? Nope. But it will run on Windows 2000 server? 
my understanding is that there's some sort of deep level security stuff that isn't present on Windows 2000 that means it won't run. Okay, so it's going to run on as far as the client XP and higher, and as far as the server, Windows Server 2003. Yep. Okay. So what are we? So obviously you don't have to have uh, Longhorn to take advantage of Indigo, and that's the point I'm trying to make. So what's um, where, where are we going? Why, why is Indigo going to be? As you say, it's sort of a refactoring and a repackaging of what they're doing with Wissy. What makes it better? Well, I guess the, the first big difference is it, it's baked into the platform, so it, it comes with all the sort of the, the support that uh, the platform comes with, whereas Wizzy's on a, a short-term two-year support cycle. Um, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is it, it may implement more um, functionality than is provided in Wizzy, although we know that the last version of Wizzy will be wire-level compatible with Indigo, so you can talk from an Indigo endpoint to a, um, some future version of Wizzy that ships uh, on or before the Indigo ship date. Um, so we know that that will happen. And, and the main thing is that the Wizzy team is basically, their focus is on, as Don said, I, I listened to his uh, .NET Rock show, as he said, the focus in Wizzy is getting an implementation out there into developers' hands, not necessarily on providing the easiest uh, object model for developers to use. The functionality is more important than usability for Wizzy. Yeah. But with Indigo, the usability is a, is a the high-order bit, as Don would say. Right. Yeah, I think Clemens Vasters had a comment on that recently, and and Don wrote about that. It was the your job is basically to make my job so easy and so boring, like I'm just basically redundant. And then Don wrote, "Yep." Actually, (laughs) he said he said make it so boring so that I actually have no choice to survive except for to join Microsoft. (laughs) Right. Right. That's right. That was what he said. Yeah. Why have you unplugged from the collective? (laughs) <laughs> Why have you terminated your connection? The, the, the key point I would drive, like Michael, Michael asked in the in the chat room as we've been talking, uh, you know, whether there should be any fear, confusion, or doubt about where to use Wizzy today, and should you should you not use Wizzy because Indigo uh, may ship in future. Uh, the key thing is to ask yourself what what you need in your web service. If you need security, policy, or addressing, then Wizzy is an excellent solution that will work today. Um, be aware that when you do use Wizzy, you may need to go through some manual upgrade steps. Uh, so we've seen that Wizzy 1 and Wizzy 2 aren't wire-level compatible, but they can run side-by-side. Side. So um, if you wanted to take a, a Wizzy 1 to a Wizzy 2, you need to do a little bit of tweaking. But it's not it's not a huge investment. It's of the order of like hundreds of lines of code rather than thousands. Um, so if you need those things today, then Wizzy is available and a perfectly good solution. Uh, it has a different support policy in that it's two years rather than the, the platform, which I think is five or ten. I'm, I'm not aware of the exact figure. Um, uh, but just, yeah, it's available today. Definitely go out and use it. There's no reason to hold back um, waiting for Indigo. Uh, and the story will just get better. The, the future versions of Wizzy, uh, if the last version of Wizzy will be wire-level compatible with Indigo, so there'll be no difference in terms of the messages that are flying around. So, uh, as I say, if you need the functionality that Wizzy provides, then go ahead and use it. Don't be don't be uh, you know talked into avoiding it, waiting for Indigo that we're shipping you know at some point in future. I want to ask you guys a question: what What the hell is going? What's happening with enterprise services? And is this part of the picture anymore? Is this something that we only use if we want Com Plus access? Or, I mean, enterprise services had all this rich stuff in it. It still has yep. all this rich stuff in it. Um, 
even including soap. What's is this a divergence here? Uh, what's going on? So, John, do you want to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, I think it's important to state that technologies like .NET Remoting, COM Plus, MSMQ, these technologies are not going away by any stretch of the imagination. Um, essentially, if you want to look at what's happening with enterprise services, it's being utilized by um, aspects of the, of the plumbing or Indigo. So what you're going to see are um, this notion of, you know, at, I don't want to say aspect-oriented program, but this notion of interception, uh, yeah. this notion of um, having a DTC at the, uh, at the receiving end, uh, this notion of having um, security baked in as part of the, uh, as part of the plumbing. All these, all these ideas are going to be um, realized, if you will, in, in some of the aspects of Indigo. So enterprise services is going to be there. Um, it's going to be supported till the end of time. So it's being utilized by Indigo. In, in other words, if you want to be prepared for Indigo in terms of you know building distributed architecture, then you should be using enterprise services today because it provides you with the security and the transaction support and um, the ability, of course, to do loosely coupled events and things like that that we don't have any other way unless you want to roll your own around .NET Remoting. .NET Remoting is really not the path to Indigo. It's just part of uh, cross-app domain within the same process. That's the best practice used for it, not to cross-machine or process boundaries. Okay. So I don't know if I'm answering your question except to say that enterprise services is very important today for any distributed system, and it will actually be the better path to uh, working with Indigo because the Indigo release will be swallowing enterprise services within it, its okay. API. I see. So I think, I think the way, the way um, I've heard it described is, is Indigo is the one API to rule them all. That they've they got the remoting guys, they've got the Azimex guys, they've got the... Sorry? Is that the one program Doug and uh, Don Box talked about? Did you see his talk, SOA talk at uh, TechEd? Right. I did. I did. I, I, it's always being written. Right. I think it's, it's, it's sort of tangential to that. They're basically saying at the moment you've got all these different ways of remotely you know, doing distributed apps. You've got remoting and Azimex and WYSI and... Um, enterprise services, literally what they've done is put all these guys in the same building and said, come up with one programming model that means we have all the functionality available to any of these programs, like the one programming model, the Indigo programming model, and so that developers don't have to make this decision at the start about which technology they start with. They should have the functionality available um, to them all the time. Makes so sense. you guys get in one room, sort it out, and come out with Indigo. That's kind of what they've been told. Right, and the whole notion of the unification behind the programming model things makes things so much easier. Um, the recently, um, I believe it was Richard Turner who was on Channel 9, and he spoke lovingly about Indigo. Um, there's about, I think, three episodes of him talking exclusively about Indigo. One of the questions he addresses, and this might be pertinent to your audience, is how would you describe Indigo to a VB.net developer? So I'd highly encourage your listeners to go um, to yeah. Channel 9. And yeah, check absolutely. That. We should check the, that. The, the other thing, just in terms of your question about enterprise service, I think Michelle's answer is spot on. The, the thing to, to ask yourself when you start with a distributed application is, what does my application need to do? And if you need things, as Michelle mentioned, like transactions, then there there isn't really an alternative then to use enterprise services uh, available in the framework. I mean, you could roll your own, as you said. but So, so the thing is, with all these things, Choosing the right technology depends on what you need in your solution. So if you need security and policy and addressing, 
then if you just need web services, Azimex does fine. What's in the, the framework does fine. If you need security policy or, or addressing or transport independence, then WYSI's a good answer. And if you need things like the um, message queuing and transactions and loosely coupled events and things like that, then use enterprise services. Actually, I'd like to just make one comment on that, and that is I think people do need on the web services side WSE because without it, they're not getting the timestamp, which means they're not detecting message replay. And also with SSL, all you're doing is securing endpoint to endpoint. You're not securing across intermediaries, so anybody can read the message. So, in fact, without using WS Security, which is now the OASIS standard, um, you're not actually getting true web service security just using SSL today. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. As I said, if you need security, then you shouldn't be using Azimax. You should move to WYSI. So Dave Bost says, are there any opinions on Microsoft's enterprise development reference framework, ShadowFax? Any experience implementing it? Um, so what ShadowFax is, that, anyway? is, a, is a very interesting workspace on the God.net workspaces. Um, basically, what they're coming up with is a set of they're much like the PAG group in the sense that they're trying to come up with a set of best practices when looking at service-oriented architectures, encompassing things like WYSI, like Indigo, and so forth. Um, the, the, you know, Shadowfax is not, a tech, is not necessarily a technology, but essentially um, a set of recommendations. As, hmm. as far as my understanding of it, I haven't had, had, uh, had much time to look at Shadowfax. I think the important thing with ShadowFax too is it's it's kind of showing you how you can use the existing Microsoft technologies inside a service boundary. So I think it's important to to, to sort of make that distinction that service-oriented architecture is about how you expose things internally. ShadowFax is 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 looking at how you can build things uh, with the existing technologies inside your service. Right. Right. And it's also interesting to note that I think the former program manager of Complus or still is the comp, uh, that that whole team might have gotten rolled into another one. Um, is leading up Shadowfax. I can't remember his name at the top of my head right now, but um, he's leading up that team for for Shadowfax as far. And there's a ton of developers that are contributing ideas and so forth. Well, um, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to ask you uh, each in turn to sort of uh, say some last words and 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 I want to ask you this question. Um, give you a a minute to brag here about some implementations that you've done or one in particular. So if you've, uh, if you've been involved in an implementation that used WSI or uh, web services in an interesting way, um, brag about it. Tell us about it. Let's start with uh, Benjamin. Okay. So last year um, I helped um, a major global banking client develop a web services security framework. And I was on the .NET side and we had another team on the Java side and uh, using uh, WYSI, we were able to implement it uh, in far, far less time. And uh, it was just a much happier, much easier experience. Um, WYSI provided us with uh, a lot of points where we could change things that we needed to to make things compatible on the wire. Um, and I just think Microsoft are, are getting it right with the programming model in WYSI, and it just gets better in future. Uh, compared to what the other team had to go through in Java, I'm, I'm glad I'm on the Microsoft side of the fence. Mm. Oh, um, I guess cool. I'll go next. Uh, sure. So uh, as far as um, I do a lot of coding in the God.net workspaces, one of which I'm, I'm a part of is NGallery. NGallery is a, basically an awesome tool for um, having photos put up online. It's an ASP.net application. All right, um, yeah. one, of, one of the things that I'm trying to do is, is expose um, the pieces of NGallery as services using WYSI2 um, so that uh, eventually down the track, um, we may be able to interoperate with 
um, other galleries for, say, album aggregation and so forth. The other piece that I've been working on recently um, with both Michelle and uh, Christian Ware and various other people um, is a little side project that uh, Christian called Plumber Orange. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea behind Plumber Orange is that um, we're trying to bring some of the WS Star specifications that aren't in WYSI into WYSI. Oh, cool. um, and so one of the specifications that I implemented was WS Eventing. So oh, cool. uh, we have an implementation. Um, it's still a little bit rough, but um, we're hoping to open up the .NET workspace pretty soon uh, to the masses. Oh, that's great. Michelle? Well, in terms of implementation with clients, uh, nobody's actually used WSC because most were waiting for WS Security to be standardized that we've dealt with. But one thing that we did that was really interesting, and actually John and Benjamin are part of this, is uh, we did an event uh, in May just before TechEd called uh, an Interop Education Day where we actually built our own web services interoperability between BEA, .NET, WSC 2.0, and open source uh, access Sweet. using uh, source ID for the access side to do SAML token receipt. And we actually built a .NET token issuer. Actually, Benjamin built that. So um, he, he started that up. And then I kind of took that and worked with uh, another gentleman, Chris Haddad, who did the open source side. And I used to do access development, too. So we sort of played back and forth trying to tweak the encryption process, which is why I mentioned that earlier. So we call this Interop Warriors, this small group of us, that we've actually put up a website to start blogging and continuing our experiments. So... It's uh, www.interopwarriors.com, and hopefully we'll get a chance to keep doing these events so we can build some samples and actually prove that things are working between the systems as the wow. WS star uh, standards continue to evolve in each platform, because, of course, WSI is probably the furthest along in terms of support today for a GUI interface to help the developer, but... Uh, BEA is coming up with some new stuff, and certainly the open source side has some tools that you can plug in. So oh, that's great, um, Michelle. You want to tell any jokes? Oh, you have time for a joke? <laughs> yeah. Here till Thursday. Try the video. I mean, I'll, try, you, I'll try and keep it tame this time. No, actually, I'd prefer you didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this bear walks into a bar. Yeah. And he says to the bartender, "Bartender, give me a beer." Bartender <sighs> says, "Sorry, we don't serve beer to bears in bars." Bear says, look, bartender, give me a beer or else. Bartender says, sorry, we don't serve beer to bears in bars. So the bear says, look, you see that lady over there sitting at the bar minding her own business? Well, if you don't give me a beer, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to eat her bones and all, spit out the leftovers, and I'm going to come back, and you're going to be sorry. You're going to lose customers. <laughs> and the bartender says, I'm sorry, but we don't serve beer to bears in bars. So the bear goes over to the woman, eats her up, spits out the bones, comes back, sits at the bar, and says to the bartender, how about that beer? Bartender says, sorry, but I don't serve beer to bears on drugs. Bear says, look, I'm not on drugs. What are you talking about? He says, what about that barbiturate? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Good night. Oh, jeez. Can I I get one? I I, I promised a friend I'd get a plug-in. Can I get a plug-in? Go for it. Um, So um, there's been a lot of discussions about sort of Visual Studio test system and things like that coming out in future. I just wanted to plug that there's a solution today called NUnit Add-in that's available free and works on Visual Studio 2002, 2003, and oh, cool. um, the Whippy bits. And uh, if you want to look it up, um, weblogs.asp.net slash nunitadding. Excellent. It's written by a guy called Jamie Cantor, and he's working on uh, implementing a solution that lets you do your unit testing um, in nunit and run the same tests using the, using the Visual, Stu- uh, Visual Studio team system. So 
there you go. Quick plug. Excellent. Yeah, I've, I've heard of him. Well, I can't wait to check that out. Well, listen, guys, uh, thanks for having this uh, web services and SOA roundtable discussion with us tonight. It really, uh, Michelle just sort of came out of nowhere. That was great. I'm glad you stopped by, Michelle. Thanks for letting me call in, guys. Absolutely. And uh, we'll we'll catch you guys on the flip side, okay? Great. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks. Bye. All right. Later. So, Rory, what a show. So, Carl. Yeah, that was a good show. This is really fun. It was fun having Michelle drop in. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, remote thing is working out nicely. The uh, the the serious serious hardware and software that we have in the background doing the work of making you sound like you're right here in the room. It's pretty awesome. Yep. It'd be cool to have the video thing, you know. I was thinking about that a lot during tonight's show. But. I'm actually thinking of getting an iMac, you know, because really? you, yeah, because you said yeah. that the uh, the video thing you have is Mac only and it works really excuse me, really it, really it, well. It kicks butt. It really does kick butt. So yeah, if you did that, man, that'd be awesome. That would be very cool. All right, man. Well, so what's on the uh, what's on the horizon for you? The horizon for me right now, um, I'm just writing a Longhorn article mm-hmm. and working on the book. Um, I'm thinking about doing some actual real office work uh, sometime soon. Um, I kind cool. of miss actually doing this stuff. I, th- I I wanted to have a little bit of time off. Yeah, and time to get over the stupid medication stuff, but I can't help it. I really do miss going in and typing and making things happen. So yeah. I'm looking to doing some of that, and that's it for me for the near future. Okay, um, let's uh, invite the users to go to the website that is www.franklins.net/call.netrocks and send in the secret secret namespace of the week, and we will pick a winner. Just in here they come. And if you've already won something, you are disqualified. And so we're only hearing from people who have uh, won in the in the past. Oh, wait a minute. So you use a fake name. Yeah. <laughs> and the winner of the bag of swag is Quentin Rexwinkle. Yay! <laughs> Bravo! Quentin Rexwinkle from OTA in Oklahoma City. And it was system.g.wiz.this.swag.sucks. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's good, good to have you in here. And Rory, of course, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bye. Well, bye. Keep rocking on. And uh, <laughs> okay. I'm going to be at Dev Teach, but we'll be back next Thursday live. So until then, we'll see you later. Okay. <laughs>